41st episode of the game podcast i'm your host Jerry thompson here with me is brian gottlieb and we got some cool stuff to talk about the first weekend of big tournaments with our devastation just happened uh there were some i guess unfortunate changes depending on how you look at it to how magic online is posting deck lists now and we're gonna start by talking about that and how it's been affecting things so uh they used to post 10 of the 5-0 deck lists from league uh leagues at random and now they changed that number to five. It's mostly at random, except every deck list that they post is going to be 10 individual cards different than the last one, which is kind of weird to me because we've already seen it happen with like there's two mono red lists po- like getting posted or two Mardu vehicles lists getting posted. And I don't think that that was their intention. But yeah, how has this been changing things for you, Brian? It's strange because I heard this announcement and there was kind of like a lot of uproar in the community about it. I mean, I heard people say crazy things like I'm just going to stop playing magic, which I just don't understand because the information provided to us is just kind of like a different context under which to play the game. Like, okay, now you don't have as much information, but neither does anyone else. So we're all just, you know, playing a new game. And it's kind of like, if if you hate this, then you should also hate the release of a new set because a new set changes the way the game is played every time. It presents new context for us to play Magic under. And that's, to me, when I first heard the decision, that's all this was. It was a new context. And, you know, we weren't going to have quite as much information, but there was still a lot there and we would still extrapolate, you know, what we needed to and, and make our deck decisions that way. But... This isn't me saying I like or dislike the changes. I'm still kind of on the fence, but they are proving to be far more impactful than I thought they would be. The kind of like key piece I I missed was that I don't really have a sense of what the metagame is right now as far as percentages go. I know what I certainly know what decks are present in the metagame. You know, I know who the players are, I know who to watch out for. But before looking at the 5 0 list, I was able to get a sense of exactly how played a deck was, how likely I was to face, say, mono red in an event. I'm having a hard time getting to that information now. I, I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to anticipate metagame percentages short of just being on Magic Online all the time. Now, right now, I'm on Magic Online all the time, so it's it's going just fine. I do have a sense of kind of what's happening, what trends are going on. But in the past, I have done a lot of my theorizing and kind of metagaming solely based on moto results. I thought, you know, it often presented a full picture and I was able to get the conclusions I need to just by seeing the 5-0 list. I don't think that's possible anymore. I, I think things have fundamentally changed. And again, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's much more different than I anticipated it being. Yeah, so I think we both kind of approach things the same way where it's like, okay, this new impactful change has happened. And it's not about looking back at what you used to have and just being like, oh man, things were better back then. I wish I had that. It's just, okay, this is the system that we exist in now. So how do we best exist here, right? Exactly. And that's how I've that's how I've always approached magic, you know, and even when, you know, this goes back to the simple things like when a format is all one deck. Like I think back to when it was Callblade Mirrors and people were getting upset they were playing Callblade Mirrors. I was like, well, I'm just going to play the Callblade Mirror better than anyone else and think about all these ways to approach the Callblade Mirror. And it was different. That's usually not the way you do magic, but it was it was still magic and it was still enjoyable. It was just a different skill set to be utilized. Yeah, I think no matter what format it is, I can find something to enjoy about it. It's not going to be the same type of thing every time, but no matter what, there's always going to be something that I'm going to pick out to appreciate. Exactly, and I think that's a healthy way and 
a way that's conducive to very good results as well because you yeah. focus on what matters essentially. Yeah, it's it's kind of a glass half full thing, which is sort of weird for me. Same, same. <laughs> because, yeah, I'm, I'm always looking at like the positive stuff to try and stay positive and try and appreciate the things that I do like and everything instead of just always looking at the negative side of things. I, I think that the the biggest thing is that I want to get your feelings on what the strategic implications of this are. Like, if you think about it just on a very basic level, are you incentivized to kind of just play decks that are a little bit safe against the field? Like, are, are you incentivized to look for the 50% deck as opposed to kind of being like, oh, the metagame's here now, so I should definitely swoop in with this? Is, is it a harder read to make? On the mailbag episode of the podcast, uh, before you grace me with your presence, I was asked a question about how different amounts of information impact what is going to happen to you know, the metagame and decks people play and stuff like that. And I, I honestly didn't know. I, I thought I could see it either way where it's like, you know, maybe withholding information is better for magic as a whole or maybe giving everyone all the information is better for magic as a whole. I don't know. To me, I kind of relate it to like how I approach a pro tour. And I, I should note that I've mostly like when I've tried to peg these things like pro tour metagames, I've gotten them horribly wrong for one reason or another. And it's it's kind of just been like a different reason every time. I don't know why. Like, now it is, you know the decks that are good, and now you have to figure out how people are going to react to having that information, and you don't necessarily know what the metagame is, so it's not like you can make a good conclusion for maybe what sort of metagame decks people will play. So you're, you're basically just, like, guessing at how people are going to move from here, and I don't know, man, people continue to elude me. They are complicated beings. Yeah, it's funny because what you're describing, it's not any different than what we were doing previously. Like we were just extrapolating and guessing based on the information provided. We're just dealing with a different set of information now. So, But it was easier to predict how people were going to react because you knew everything that they knew. Okay. Right? So yes. now I have, I'm working with the team. I'm getting like their experiences. Like maybe I talked to you a little bit. I'm getting your experience. I'm following people on Twitter and I'm seeing like people talk about like these weirdo deck lists, like Gate to the Afterlife decks, right? I'm seeing these pop up with like Refurbish and Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, Marionette Master, stuff like that. It's like, okay, so I know that deck is a thing, but I don't know if everyone else knows that that deck is a thing because it hasn't been posted on like a huge platform, right? The Moto deck lists were always something that I basically knew that everyone was going to look at or like the metagame breakdown on Goldfish. Like I knew that everyone was going to look at that. But now I don't know where people are going to get their information. So it's harder for me to guess where they're going to go from here. Yeah, that's the thing is that the information is not as homogenized. We all have different experiences with our magic information we all pursue it in different ways you know some people are active on twitter some people are involved in forums and they we're going to have to be more careful about letting our bubbles shape our perceptions of a metagame which yeah is kind, no, kind of an interesting uh that's you know, another good point too yeah it's an interesting parallel to kind of how the real world is working out right now where people are getting very trapped in their bubbles and sometimes you know have a hard time getting outside viewpoints i think as magic players we're going to have to watch out for the same phenomenon if your Twitter feed is populated with people who think mono blue mill is the next big thing, in your head, you're going to start thinking, oh man, I better be prepared for mono blue mill. But it's only in your Twitter bubble that people are really excited about this thing. Right. And the, the people that are going to your tournament probably aren't following the same people you are, you know? So it's like, they all think that mono red's the shit, right? Yeah. It's a very, it's a very interesting situation to deal with. I'm excited for it. I think there are strategic implications. My instinct would be to 
until we kind of suss out this process a little bit, until we have some more data under our belts, I want to play it a little safe. I, I do kind of want to hedge a little bit and just take decks that are good against the field. And I think maybe some of the people who were successful in this first weekend of tournaments took a similar approach. I don't know if it was just like, it just happened to work out that way to coincide with this new data regime or, you know, it was actually a targeted thing where they're like, well, I just don't have the data I need to make these kind of broad leaps, so I better play it safe. But that does seem to be what happened to some extent. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I don't know, I do think that this is just generally bad for me because I tend to work better the more information I have. And certainly I think that withholding information from me is a bad thing for, for Magic because it's like, if I see a brew that looks awesome and there are things about it that I like, like maybe I'm going to test and tune it and at some point that could be another real deck, right? So you take information away from me, I never see those things. Like, I, I'm not a... A deck builder necessarily but i will certainly like improve upon someone's already good thing and and make it even better and then that's generally when like new decks get formed or like even using my platform to play a deck that people might not have taken seriously like the monument deck right or like the, if that deck never got posted we never play in the invitational it's never a deck and now according to goldfish it's like the most winningest deck yeah so i i disagree with you a little i, I understand what you're saying you're not wrong but I think the impact on that process is not as great as the impact on just the shaping of the metagame, understanding the trends. Like you're still getting a lot of deck lists. It's been reduced by about 50%, but I think the diversity in deck lists, which as you mentioned, has some failings, but it's there for a reason. I, I think there is good exposure. I think we're seeing a lot of stuff palp up. Also, there's this kind of huge dump of PTQ lists. While there are fewer deck lists being posted, un indisputably, I think the impact on your process is going to be less. I think the real impact is on the prediction side of things and, and understanding where metagames are going. You said you think it's a bad thing for you. I think it's a bad thing for everyone. It's harder for everyone. Yeah. Straight up. I think. So in a lot of situations where it's harder for everyone, and this was kind of like the community outcry, so I don't know if I'm buying into this or not, but in a lot of situations where it's harder for everyone, it's the elite who get the edge. Maybe, but this is my skill set, okay. is, is actually working like through data and looking at deck lists, seeing things that I like, combining them with other decks, and then actually building a deck that is great. Well, I'm, I'm going to argue with you by praising you and, and saying that I think your skill set is, is probably broader than you're giving yourself credit for. I think you're awesome at that, but you're going to succeed in this kind of new regime just as well as you did in the past. But I, I do think there'll be an adjustment period. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, what I've been doing recently is mostly just like playing the best deck, like testing, tweaking, tuning, like all that stuff, and just trying to like win, win, win. And I think maybe my content suffers a little bit or like, you know, maybe I have like some brewing itch that I want to scratch that I don't get to because it's like all I see are Mardu and Mono Red decks or whatever. So it, it does impact my life. I think it will impact my term results where it's like I'm going to end up playing Band Company at every tournament instead instead of occasionally playing something like Monument. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think I'll be okay. I'm not just like, oh, my magic career is ruined or whatever. That's, that's just kind of ridiculous because I'm, I'm also fine at playing the best deck. And I have some success doing that and I'm comfortable there. And I, I think this will just lead to me doing that more often, which kind of sucks for magic. It's like not super exciting if everyone is just like, well, we don't have enough information to, you know, make 
like informed decisions about like what people are going to be doing. So there is like no metagaming to be done because we don't actually know what the metagame is. We are kind of in the dark ages. So I guess we're just all playing band company all the time. I mean, that sucks too. Yeah, just forced to play it safe. You can make the argument on the other side though. And I'm playing devil's advocate to some extent, but let's just let's no, just take my that. experience from this weekend where I played Green Red Ramp in the PTQ. Had I known the percentage of the metagame, which was going to be mono red, I probably would have never played the deck in the tournament. So the absence of information led me to try a different archetype, which is like a failing on my side, but it's a failing that may happen more often and kind of bring new decks to light that way. I mean, I'm stretching to some extent, but I'm just trying to, there's a lot to extrapolate from these changes. And I think that we haven't actually felt the entirety of their effects yet. And I really want to see how this ripples through the format. It's interesting. That's my main point is it's interesting. It's not bad. It's not good. It's interesting. And I want to see the consequences of it. And I want to see them play out to their conclusion. It'll be interesting to see, I mean, Wizards isn't always the best about this, but every now and then they'll give you kind of like a review of what they, you know, we tried this idea, here's how it panned out. I'm interested to see how they perceive this experiment going when all is said and done, because it is a new way of approaching magic. Did did you think it would be this impactful when you heard the announcement? I honestly wrote it off and I was like, "Eh, this really isn't a big deal. We're just getting a few fewer deck lists. I mean, I, I didn't think that it was going to be like, oh shit, what's a metagame, you know? Yeah, but, me neither. I miss, I miss that part of the equation entirely. But yeah, I was just like, okay, you know, maybe this is good. Maybe I see like an extra brew here and there, and maybe that's good. So A, the standard format has a lot of really viable decks. Yes. There's like 10 or 15 completely playable decks. And you see just like variations on those in, in basically every daily event or league or whatever. It's like kind of sad because the format is so wide open. It's really difficult to make metagame decisions, but also because the format's so wide open, it is even more unlikely that you're going to see a, a brew pop up at a 5-0, right? And yeah. how, like how often does a true brew 5-0 a league and now how often is it going to get posted if there's like I don't I don't even know how many people 5-0 a league a day. Like I want to say like 50 or something. Maybe that's high. No, that that sounds about right to me. You know, I wish there could be kind of curating of these things, but you understand the problem with curating, right? Because then there's someone telling a narrative about the metagame. Right. Yep. And that's very problematic. Um, and I think that's exactly why this automated process was used. And they wanted diversity, and this was the most automated way to get to it. Maybe we'll see that number creep up so they yeah, get a little bit more diversity. That's that's the thing, though, is that they are curating it to some degree. I know, degree. I know. You, you, unless you present everything, you have to. there has to be some level of curation. They're just automating the curation, right? Yeah, it's, it's automated, but it's also kind of controlled. Yeah, I know. I think this is a very complicated situation, and, you know, that speaks in favor of just dumping all the data and not having to deal with this whole quagmire of what do we release, when do we, like, just give it all to us. Right. And I don't know. That sounds fine to me. I don't I don't really have a problem with that. It's just a different way of playing Magic. And I don't want to keep harping on the same point, but I would be happy playing Magic under those circumstances just as much as I am happy playing that this way and how I was happy previously. So Yeah. Whenever a new system happens, I am excited to try and break that system. Like, how can I exploit this thing? That part is certainly interesting to me. I do feel like it's like, oh, well, you know, a lot of the stuff that I think that I was good at, I can't really utilize here. So that kind of sucks. I don't really like being bad at things, you know, like I don't I don't like trying new things. I don't like going through the process of like trying to get better. It's like I don't want to 
suck at 20 different things or like be mediocre at them. I want to be really good at a bunch of different things, like a few key things. And this makes it harder for me. I can understand that completely. That's funny that you say that because I'm kind of the opposite. I like being great at the thing I'm all in on. And then I like having all these mediocre interests all over the place and like kind of donkey my way through these things. Like I've been learning fighting games lately and I love just getting trashed at them and like realizing okay. that I'll never be good at them. I don't know. I think there's a something to be said for just working on the skills you're not good at and trying to find a way to, to better yourself when you know you're the underdog and it's kind of like stacked against you, which is kind of like, as you're describing your situation here, this isn't your ideal way of playing magic. But in finding ways to succeed under this system, I think it's going to make you a better magic player overall. So back to the other stuff. I don't want to be mediocre at a bunch of stuff. I like If I'm going to do something, I want to be the best. That's it. I guess I'm phrasing it wrong. I want to be the best, but I, I recognize things that I just am not capable of being the best at. Right. And then, and then I just won't do those things because I know I'll never be the best at them. That's funny. Sometimes I take that approach. There's other things that pique my interest just the right way. Things like League of Legends and fighting games where I just know I can never be the absolute top tier, but they still just kind of, they grab me in the right way and I see the potential for improvement. And when I'm able to make rapid improvement, that's enough for me sometimes. Work. I don't know. This uh, is kind of an aside from what it, exactly it is, is an, happening. It here, is an but, aside, but it's cool, you know. Like yeah. get to get to know more about you and your motivations. That definitely yeah. helps me. Yeah, yeah, and that that plays. I mean, our motivations play into how we play magic and how we approach problems like this, right? It's, it's right. It's exactly, it informs the way you game. So I think that's something you know for listeners to think about when they have kind of these gut reactions that oh, this is so terrible. Well, ask yourself why you feel that way. And, and think about if there's an, actually an opportunity for improvement for you as opposed to just being outraged about it. Yep. One thing I will note is that we're going to talk about this standard PTQ that happened on Magic Online. I think there are about 200 or so people in it. And it weirds me out. It is bizarre. Uh, so there's 217 people. Uh, they posted the top 32 deck list as they did previously. That's so many deck lists. This just goes against, like, what they're trying to do now. I don't know how many Wizards people listen to this podcast, but, like, I, I hope you don't take this away from me because I like having it, you know? Like, this is the snapshot that I get. But, yeah, this this seems to go against, like, everything that they're trying to do. Like, why would you post so many deck lists? It does seem counterintuitive to their stated goals. I th This is how I justified it. And, again, a little bit of a thin justification, but playing devil's advocate. I think that the, these results function as a snapshot of a day. This is what the metagame looked like on that day. You know absolutely on whatever date this is. It looks like July 15th. Here's a snapshot of the metagame. You know exactly what was going on. But it's not a day-to-day -day update. And I think that was their main problem. And kind of the feedback loops that day-to-day -day updates were creating were problematic. So if they just have this one snapshot in time it's less likely to kind of cause these ripple effects and these snowballs. I don't know if that's true or not. It, it, it seems weird. Why would you do it half and half? Why does anyone care about like the six and three deck lists in the PTQ? Well, as, as someone who went six and three in the PTQ, I will tell you there are some excellent six and three deck lists in this PTQ, just so right, you know. Right, <laughs> It seems so half and half. Like, honestly, it is much easier for me to believe that they just forgot to click the button to make it so this deck list wouldn't post. Well, you have more inside information of the workings of Wizards than I do. That seems a little crazy to me. Not from the Mikko side. I, I don't know okay. I don't know anything as far as how Magic Online operates, but it just seems so out of line with what they're actually trying to accomplish that there's nothing else I can chalk it up to except for it being an accident. It's a huge chunk of information. I don't I don't really have a justification for it. I, I gave you my best shot. 
I do certainly hope they do it going forward. This is kind of like, this is the meat and potatoes of our, our podcast this week, this and the Star City event. So as, you know, content creators and not only content creators, but players of Magic, this is the stuff we love. Like we, we definitely like these kind of dumps. And I guess that translates to we would like it every day of the week. But if we're not going to get it, keep these coming for the time being. Oh my God, I would love this every week. Yeah, it would be I, pretty I, sweet to just see. I, all the I always numbers. love the the too much information articles on SCG and even like the matchup percentages on Goldfish and like MTG Pulse did that for a little bit too. I yeah. personally like it, but yeah, I still have no idea how it actually impacts Magic. I really don't know. It's a complicated question and uh, maybe one that's actually impossible to answer because the the ripple effects are are too hard to see. Yeah, and and right now they're trying a new thing because they didn't like what was happening before. And now I think with like banning plus new set plus rotation coming up, like it is possible that there are just too many variables getting introduced at once for them to actually make an informed decision. Yeah, and, and honestly, after the last year of Standard, I'm kind of on board with any changes you want to try to get things to a better place because obviously what was going on previously was simply not working as far as creating a fun standard environment. So right. if you if you got some bonkers ideas to try, go, I'll give you some leash. Go for it for, you know, six months and see what happens. But, but one at a time. You don't introduce three <laughs> variables because it's impossible to decipher which one actually cause the end result right i like your approach to the scientific method what you're doing sounds correct to me but that is not the wizard's way and we kind of do these things in balls of changes so yeah i I know what you're saying i'll just say that okay i guess like part of it is the marvel banning announcement was like okay we're gonna ban marvel but we it, it seemed like there was the unspoken thing kind of at the end where it's like but where we think you're wrong and yes. like marvel wasn't broken and like hundred percent information so i don't know it's it, like that made me think that like maybe you should share all the information not take information away that's true i mean if you know if we had all that information and it showed that we were incorrectly jamming marvel because we got caught in a feedback loop well we probably would have broken the feedback loop pretty quickly right as you know maybe not the kind of mid-range grinders but elite players would have realized like oh, this deck doesn't actually have a positive win percentage against anything. We're just jamming it. Everyone's playing it, and that's why it's winning tournaments. That would have been sussed out very quickly. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, let's take away all the information. It's like, well, then how can we ever make those decisions, you know? I mean, I guess maybe we will have... We'll we'll think that Marvel is winning less overall, but... Does, does that actually make us play it less? It's like Marvel had the thing where it was like, okay, Ulamog, you on turn four. That's a feel bad. Yes. And as, for, for the person playing against it. And as the person playing with it, you're just like, I am a god. I am unbeatable. Like, this deck is incredible, right? Yeah. And it makes it harder to differentiate, like, the actual percentages to, like, the times where you got Ulamog on four and had no chance, right? Because it, it was just such, like, a traumatic experience, basically, that, like, you overplayed the frequency of it in your head. Yeah, you might be winning 60% of your games or whatever against them, but you think that you're winning 40 because yeah. of how bad it feels. Yeah, that's a very real phenomenon, something you see in, in poker all the time, you know, yep. and I can totally buy into that. I, I think, like, whatever, we don't have to get too much into the Marvel situation. Obviously, we, we've made it through, but I, I think that had a lot more to do with just play experience. The play experience was pretty miserable for quite a few months, more than... Uh, the, honestly, at, at one point, the the win percentages just didn't matter. It really was not relevant to my... Dis- my want to see Marvel removed was not at all related to its win percentage. And I agree 100%. I think that they should have banned Marvel on, on that alone. Just like, 
how difficult it was to interact with and how bad getting Ulamogged on turn four felt and everything. Like, no one was having fun. No. So, like, why the hell does this thing exist, right? But, like, don't ban it and then also be like, oh, but you guys were wrong because it, it wasn't winning all that much, right? Yeah, I, I had my gut. The first reaction, the very first thing I said after the announcement was exactly that. Like, why are we being told we're wrong? Like, I don't care. I don't care that I'm wrong. This isn't fun for me. I, I want to play fun games of Magic. So, like, I didn't need the cheap shot was kind of how I felt. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a high-stress time at Wizards, and I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to some extent. And, like I said, that extends to letting them try some new stuff. And this is some new stuff, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, they they don't have an easy job. I can speak from experience. It it is rough in there. Yeah, I believe that one hundred percent. And they're they're doing their absolute best, and they're all talented people. And I believe that eventually, you know, everything is going to course correct. Everything's going to work out. And right now, it kind of seems like we're in that time. As long as you like. There just being like 30 different archetypes that you can play. And no matter what type of deck you like playing, you can probably find something that you like. So that's good for a lot of people. For us, it's like, oh man, I want to play the like most winningest thing. I don't really care what it is. And right now we're having a difficult time trying to fi- actually figure that out because there are so many decks and we don't have all the information that we want. Yeah, so. it's, it's really hard to get to any kind of conclusions about this format. And, you know, I think I think we both got kind of a bunch of things wrong going into this weekend and we got some things right, but there's just a lot of stuff going on here and Whoa. this format has some shaking out to do. Dude, it's messed up because we, we did the podcast, what, on Wednesday, right? Yeah, we did it on and Wednesday. I think maybe on Thursday or something, I was watching people stream. I was playing some Magic online. This this dude was streaming Mono Red, and he was like, you know, I'm 28 and 7. And then just my next six matches, three of them were against Mono Red. I didn't play on Friday, but I was talking with uh, Matt Costa a bunch about the ramp list, and he ended up playing it too. And he's like, dude, I'm getting paired against Mono Red all the time. And I'm like, I've never played against Mono Red. He's like, I think we should be prepared for this in this PTQ. And I was like, I don't I don't think it's that big of a deal. I haven't seen it at all. Yeah, dude, you, you got to be kidding, right? It was that day. No, it was. It was. Like, everything moves so quickly, and all it takes is one person to spread all this information, right? And then it just it catches like wildfire, man. Especially yeah. if it's something like Mono Red, where I think has been absent from the metagame for so long. Like, there just hasn't been a good aggressive deck and there are just people that really identify with that stuff and they want to do that they want to play those decks so it's like you catch a whiff of mono red being like slightly playable and they're just you know people come out in droves they're all on it and talk about like the oldest trick in the book like it's certainly something i should have seen coming like week one everyone's doing kind of weird dirtily stuff and trying to figure out what actually works i'll just play mono red and kill them on turn four or turn five like it's, it happened so many times. Who's your homeboy that I met the one time? I'm pretty sure this was your friend. That that one week one of an open. Oh, Phil, right? Phil, Phil Bertarelli, a really, yeah. really good. He doesn't play a lot of Magic, but he's a really smart guy. Uh, and you're exactly right. He he beat Owen in a week one uh, finals of an SCG. They were playing the Mono Red Mirror actually. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. He just like crushed it. Absolutely steamrolled the the entire tournament with mono red and then mono red absolutely disappeared from the metagame after that yep (laughs) which maybe that's what's going on here too i could totally see that happening i so i think yeah it happened on thursday right so you had the thing where it's like oh i'll play like monday tuesday wednesday leading up to this ptq okay i'm all set take a couple days off or like go do real life stuff whatever and a lot of people that were playing in the open probably did the same stuff it was like okay well now i gotta you know get things ready before i leave and all that and they just missed the fact that this red deck is just absolutely killing it online. And 
Jonathan Job was like the one person who got like kind of this updated bigger red list from God, someone else, Gene Brumby and another person, they were testing it and gave him the list and he made the top eight. And yeah, he was like, you know, there were some mono red decks or whatever, but it wasn't wildfire like it was for the Moto PTQ. Yeah, two very different metagames. There's a lot of cool things going on in this deck. The, the fact that your mana base can do 20, that's kind of bonkers. Like, I, don't, I can't think of a red deck which had that much reach built into its mana base. It is and, mana intensive. It's like the best Keldon Necropolis of all time. Yeah, or Barbarian Ring is another one where, like, we were very happy when we had four Barbarian Rings in our yeah. mono red deck, and now just, like, everything's a Barbarian Ring, so... Yeah, and this this thing fixes that problem where it taps for colorless, so mm-hmm. you're not just, like, killing yourself against everyone, too. Yeah, it's a it's a very new tool for mono red to have access to. Other than that, it's a lot of kind of, you know, the kind of dorks you expect to see from mono red. I think Jonathan's list is very interesting, certainly goes a little bit bigger, if you ask me which one is probably going to be more popular going forward, I think his list is the better built of kind of the ones I've seen around. I think the bigger list feels a little bit more thought out to me. If you look at the Moto PTQ, the list, this is something I've wanted to do forever, and I tried this before the last PT. Uh, it has Cartouche and Trial of Zeal. In the Dude, I wanted to do that too. Yeah, it it's sometimes it feels so good you're like this is absolutely like the future of red decks and then other times it's not as good but it's it's something i've tried to make work in these kind of deck lists for a while now and I, it's it's cool to see him having it you know playing a prominent role in his list yeah uh thunder mo underscore hellkite is the streamer he had five trophies up until recently and then i think i saw him streaming today with some other stuff because uh, he he said he was going to stream mono red until people respected it. I guess he did the job. This is yeah. that's an impressive uh, an impressive piece of metagame shaping. He's not someone uh, I'm familiar with or, or I've heard of before, but he pretty much just like set the metagame on fire, literally. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen his name on Magic Online, like in the trophies list, but I've never like seen his stream uh, just until now. Where it's like, all right, it's it's a couple weeks before the pro tour. I'm watching some streams. I want to see some people play constructed, see what they're doing, especially since I don't have any information from any other sources. And yeah, just stumbled on his stream. And yeah, a couple hours later, all I was playing against was model red. That's that's, it's crazy how fast things move. I, I'll be honest. I just kind of missed the boat on this one. I, I only played against it once. So I was a little fortunate in that regard, but it wasn't winning in where I lost to it. So I, I guess I'm not that fortunate. So um, I, I played the matchup a few times from the ramp side, and it actually didn't feel that bad with, like, Kozilek's return and all the, the instant speed spot removal and stuff. I just I feel like if I had, like, two Arbor Backstompers, I couldn't have ever lost to at least the really small red decks. Yeah, I, I, I did lose very narrowly, and it felt like it was, like, close, but I, I think they're definitely a favorite, and I don't know that you can swing the bat- matchup back in your favor which is kind of a problem when it's seemingly the most played deck. Whatever. I don't want to sp- I I took all of our listeners time talking about ramp last week. I'm not going to do it this week, so let's not worry too much about that and then we can talk about other stuff going on here. Word. Uh so yeah, mono red's a thing. Uh was not really a thing at the open. Was a thing on Magic Online. Presumably is going to continue to be a thing on Magic Online. So uh life gain is is real. Uh it is good against these decks that are small and have all the haste creatures, but I will note that it is not very good against Job's list with like the Thought Not Seers and the Glory Bringers and stuff. You know, they they are very different decks. One of them is trying to burn you out, the other is trying to deal you big chunks of damage with consistent sources of damage, and life gain is basically just a fog against them. Uh some people have asked me about just life gain, and it, I think it's important to note the distinction that it can't be 
the basis of your plan. Like you're, you have to be able to control their board as well via sweepers or, you know, just having a, a larger board presence than they do. Life gain on its own is not going to get the job done here. It's not like you're against the burn deck where you could just like negate three of their spells with one of yours. That's yeah. not that's not what's going on here. So make sure that's not the entirety of your plan against Burn. Like you have to have a way to deal with their board presence if you're going to succeed in the matchup. No, I, I agree completely. And I was kind of operating under the assumption that, yes, I would be Kozilex returning them and like yes. abrading them and stuff and whittling down their board, making sure that their creatures don't hit me more than once, basically. Yeah, and, that is the way to approach it. Yeah, and then once you're like kind of stable and they're top decking, then you have to fade like the ruins, incendiary flows, other haste creatures, like make sure that you have blockers, but then they could be sandbagging like a cartouche of zeal to like get through your blocker and stuff. They have Carrie Zev's expertise post board. So you need to stabilize and then have life gain to actually make it so you're not dead to a couple good top decks from them. But yeah, you can't just be like, all right. Turn one, gain four life. Turn two, gain four life. Are you dead? It's like, no. Not gonna <laughs> they are not dead. Then. They're attacking you for 10 on turn three or whatever if you don't do anything, so. Correct. Yeah, to, to me, it's like pretty similar to when goblins started catching on, like pile driver and stuff. And people were like, oh man, I had like life burst in my deck. Like, how did you beat me? And it's like, well, I attacked you for 20. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very outmoded way of thinking. It feels like something like back from 94 when we had stream of life in our deck. You know, goofy things like that. Yeah. Uh, you certainly have to address their A plan as well. Yeah, and, and just because they're it's like a red deck with red creatures, to me, to me it's like you look at goblins with like pile driver and Goblin Goon and stuff, it's like, okay, some people might sideboard against it like it's a red deck, like it's a burn deck, but like if pile driver and Goblin Goon were green cards, people won't board in like life gain cards against them because they know it wouldn't help. But they, there's just this perception that red decks are just going to burn you out and that's their only way to win and life gain just colts them, but that's not the case. You have to look at like the cards individually, what the deck is trying to do, how they're going to beat you. That's very good advice and it, it speaks to like modal thinking, right? Like we just, one of the things we have to do as magic players because the game is so complicated is, is shortcut a lot of things, but I find it, it's very beneficial for me to periodically take inventory of my shortcuts think about why i've developed these shortcuts because a lot of time things get outmoded and exactly what you're speaking about you, you just can't go on autopilot and uh treat all mono red decks the same that's a good way to lose yeah i think my sideboard plans for most decks will be based on shortcuts but then once my opponent does something weird like they play a different way that i'm not used to or they have a different build of the deck, or maybe they sideboard differently or whatever. Then I'm like, okay, this this person's deck is a little bit different. These games are going to play out differently. And how is that going to change things? And then I just try and go from there. Yeah, that's a very good way to approach it. Start with your shortcuts and build from there. I, th I think having, you know, you're, you're talking about having a built foundation, which is right. a very, very efficient way of approaching things. Uh, so I, li I like that as well. Word. Okay, so standard Magic Online PTQ, Mono Reds all over, does not win. Mardu Vehicles wins. Jabberwocky, a.k.a. Logan Nettles, a.k.a. Reduke's cousin, gets second with blue-red control. Uh, Logan is an excellent, excellent Magic player and certainly to be feared on Magic Online and anywhere else, really. But mostly Magic Online, that's where he kills it. Uh, Mardu got third, Mono Red in fourth. Weirdo, blue-red Eldrazi deck in fifth. Yeah, that's a weird one, man. Black-red midrange in sixth. Nathan Stewart, who is like... I don't know. He's he's 14 or something. He's super young. A uh, kid from Colorado who's I don't want to pat his ego or anything, although I'm I'm sure he does not listen to this podcast, but he is he is quite good. And once he gets over like the little kid attitude, I think he will be just legitimately great. Uh so it's not that surprising to see him in 6th place. His deck looks pretty well built too. 
Like, yeah, that was an interesting list. It definitely caught my eye. Glint Sleeve Siphoner in an otherwise like pretty fat black red mid range deck. It's like, yeah, kid, I like your style. Well done. I also like his discipline, right? Because it's very easy to go off the rails on a deck like this. He didn't try and do anything crazy. You know, I can't tell you how many people were playing this exact list, like jamming boluses into it. He was just like, nope, I have a game plan. I don't need bolus. It's good deck building. He's just playing the best cards too. Yeah, maybe besides Live Fast. I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm just trashing Live Fast as a card, but I I see the role it's playing here, and you know he gets the supercharged Siphoner. What if it What if it drew you three cards? He's basically playing Painful Truths with Siphoner. Like Siphoner, Live Fast is Painful Truths. Yeah, if you get them together, it certainly supercharges. It might have been pretty easy to just get Painful Truths into this list, though, if we're being honest. Dude, it's so hard. Yeah. I don't know if you if you if you've tried to build like a, a shard based three color deck. It's not pretty. The mana is just so awkward. Like, he's he's not even playing Aether Hub with his Siphoner, you know? Yeah. Like, the mana is so bad with Smoldering Marsh. It's just unbelievable. Uh, so, yeah, pain, Painful Truths is tough. That does seem more difficult than my first instinct would be. All right, so I don't I don't really like Live Fast either. I like it more with Dark Dwellers. He only has one copy because he's playing Glorybringer, which I think is the better card. But yeah, not not to dwell on that too much. Uh, there was a Pummeler deck in seventh and uh, Black Green Energy with Dream Stealer. Uh, this was this was the other one, and I lost was to this guy. Oh, uh, this is Dave Irvine. Do you know him? He's Florida no, dude. No, I don't know him. He's good. Yeah, he he played very well. But Dream Stealer, I mean, part of this is the archetype I was playing. But Dream Stealer beat the crap out of me. It was so good. At one at one point, I thought not seared him. He had a Dream Stealer in play, and he had three blossoming defenses in his hand, and oh, this was no. like on turn three. So I'm like, well, I just have to constantly have two creatures in play, where I lose this game on the spot. Yeah. Um, it was it was so impactful. I was I was so impressed by the card and and the way the games played out. And like I said, a huge portion of that was the fact that I was playing ramp. So I'm not just putting a stamp on this card like it should be in every green black deck but it was impressive in our games very impressive yeah I, I wonder how much of that was like a meta call from him i mean he lost to mardu in the quarters it looks like so dream stealer obviously not very good there no you know it's not something you want against mono red and yeah if you look at kind of this top eight it's it's hard to see exactly where he i mean it's good against the red black deck probably but that might be but, about but it. not against anyone else really yeah. uh blue red blue red and black red yeah yeah blue red but yeah i don't know if that you know if, if that's all you're getting points against i don't know if it merits its inclusion it could be he was expecting more ramp style decks or you know he had just played against a ton of torrential gear hulk decks leading up to the tournament and and that's why it ended up in the main but just as a as a card it was impressive in our games no i could totally see that so yeah the the rest of the ptq had a little bit of everything uh definitely lots of mono red yeah mono red was something like 28 percent of the top 32 or something like that there were nine mono red decks in the in the top 32 people love it yep it absolutely dominated this tournament and you know the next most played archetype was uh blue white monument and green red pummeler both which had four copies so it was a pretty large step down from mono red to the next closest archetype yeah that's wild and all the red decks are just all like a little bit different too small so tweaks funny. yeah small tweaks same you know you could see some of them are identical. Like here's uh, Jonathan Sukunik. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Sorry if I butchered your name, Jonathan. Sukunik. Uh, Sukunik. He's he's got the cartouche uh, trial package in his list, so it seems like he maybe collaborated with the other guy in the top eight. You could definitely see like the teams across this this uh, yeah PTQ who worked together on their list. I guess in Cincinnati, things kind of the same, kind of different. A lot of different archetypes. So 
weirdo four-color control deck won uh, in the hands of Michael Hamilton. Uh, he defeated uh, Jonathan Rossum in the finals with White Blue Monument. Rossum went 14-1 and in the Swiss. Uh, I believe his loss was a concession to a teammate. So it was basically undefeated up until the finals, which is pretty damn impressive. It's a dominant performance for sure. I'm a little surprised. I feel like maybe things are a little slanted against the white-blue monument deck right now, but that could just be my own biases and, you know, the fact that I've been playing a deck with a very positive matchup. Do you think the mono-red matchup favors the blue-white deck? No. Uh, well, like, not not if, they, not if they don't have any hate, but, like, once the deck is like, okay, I'm going to play some Blessed Alliances or... Yeah. Uh, the two three that gains life and has eternalize, you know. I mean, there there are lots of things that you can play to actually fix that matchup. Like you could also just like get rid of the dust dawns in your deck that may or may not be good anymore. That's another product of not knowing exactly what the metagame is. Like who knows how good that card is? Yeah, that's a that's a tough one to judge its effectiveness. I mean, it could be a reason why the Monument decks did better in the standard open than the PTQ. Is it like I... Dust Dawn was actually playable in the open? Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at, there there was one mono-red deck in the top 32 of the SCG. So and, it, and it had big creatures. Yep. Yeah, it, it's actually a totally different deck. So I don't even know if it's worth making the same equivalence. But yeah, that's exactly, it's easy to see why Blue White Monument was able to raise to the top. That was the most played deck at the SCG. There were five copies of Blue White Monument in the top 32. So I think I read it was the most played archetype on day two as well. It was, unless you combine all the control decks. Okay. Like, they, they split blue-red control and Grix's control, which I think are effectively the same deck because it was, like, blue-red with Ebolus or whatever, so. There's a couple other weirdo ones floating around here, though. I saw, like, blue-black control appearing in the top uh, 32. Yeah, man, maybe maybe they got some inspiration from you. Yeah, his list was so boring, though. I'm not saying it's, like, it was not good. It could be great, but it's just, like, didn't really do anything new or spicy, so that's probably why I didn't explore it. To the extent yeah. I should. He had like two Bantus and that was really about it as far as, as new stuff went. But yeah, it's hard for me to see exactly why blue-black control is better than the other options right now. I mean, I, I assume all the options are just tied and also who cares? Dude just probably wanted to play the cards that he wanted to play with, right? Probably. probably he probably he, had a great time. Yeah, and then he crushed some people, so whatever. I think I think that was the winner's experience as well. He was just like, oh, I really like all these sweet control cards. Like, it's been a while since I cast Dovin Bond, so we're just going to jam it in here. And it yeah. seemed to work out for him pretty effectively. Yeah, um, dude, he got, he got the Static Orb Ultimate on the Monument deck in the finals. I saw that game. That's crazy. I think that, um, you know, people have looked at this deck list and have been a little bit taken aback by it. It looks like kind of a mishmash. You know, he said he played a bunch leading up to the the event he tested a bunch of magic online so he he had a reason for his decisions and he kind of got to this deck list by iterating i don't think this is anything like the face of control going forward i don't think you'll see this list be copied in that many places as far as interesting ideas he's exploring i mean he talked about kind of the resiliency of planeswalkers right now which rings true they they are certainly less vulnerable than all the other permanents and you know last week we talked about a, a braid kind of taking out a lot of our, our torrential gear hulks and, and doing a lot of work in the format in general. And he's just like, well, you can't touch any of my guys except for my one gear hulk. So. so one of the things that is really cool is that Planeswalkers are vulnerable to Hour of Devastation. So if you're a creature deck with Planeswalkers, that's not a great place to be. Mm -hmm. Unless they have six loyalty, then it's kind of whatever. But yeah, in, in a control deck where Hour of Devastation is not good against you and isn't going to kill anything else, yeah, your Planeswalkers are great. 
But for the most part, people aren't playing them, so there's no reason to play like the Never Returns or whatever. You know though that if we're talking, if we're being honest about Hour of Devastation, it was a card that showed up in very small numbers uh, across these tournaments. I think maybe we, if we're talking about cards that maybe we overhyped a little bit, it might be that one. I think it's good. I, I think mean, it's good too. No, I, I, I mean, I, it's a, obviously a very powerful card, but like if you look at, it is, it's just much better against mid range and monument and things like that. And now you know people have a chance to adapt. There aren't a lot of great shells for it. Like people are putting it in their blue red control decks. But yeah, I mean, I, it's not a card that I would expect to just like be a four of in all these decks and like crushing everyone because it's it's just too narrow to do that, you know. But it's just like a nice utility card that is very powerful and does make you think a little bit longer before like should I play Gideon in the sideboard of my white creature deck? Where the answer was just always yes before, and now you actually have a a limiting factor to consider. Right. You know, it's like okay, I start with three Gideons and twelve other cards, but where where do I go from there? You know. I don't know. I think I think part of the problem is Ramp did not win any of these tournaments. There is not a Ramp list that is proven to be good that people can copy. All of the Hour of Devastation decks are effectively just blue-red control decks. That, that deck is going to show up to some degree, but it, it's one of the decks that people know is good, got some new cards, and it is relatively easy to just like play a Braid or Essence Scatter. Like There are cards that are good against it. So I feel like the stock of blue red control is going to go down in the next couple weeks. So yeah, maybe our devastation just gets worse. Gideon gets a lot better. Like we saw Mardu in both tournaments do pretty well, which I wasn't really expecting. Nobody. I don't think anyone expected Mardu. I'm. It's kind of silly if you think about it. By the same premise that like mono red is kind of suited to succeed in week one. So is Mardu. Like it just has a very linear game plan and has probably the best nut draw in the format still. I think we maybe were a little silly for, for sleeping on it to the extent that we did. Still just an ultra-powerful deck. I don't see it having a huge place in the metagame going forward, but I would have said the same thing this week. So right. I don't know. I don't know where to take that information. It, it's hard to see where its positive matchups lie at this point, but it doesn't have a lot of bad matchups either. So yeah. maybe it's, it's just the 50-50 deck of the format. It's, it's the Jund. It's a fine place to be. This is a deck that, yeah, we slept on, which I thought was kind of rightfully so, but it's like I sleep on it and try and hedge against it at the same time, whereas I think a lot of people are going to sleep on it and just ignore it and forget that it exists and not try and worry about beating like Scrap Heap Scrounger, Heart of Kieran, and Planeswalkers post-board, you know? But it's like I'm I'm always thinking about that stuff. There's just so many cards you have to account for right now. It's such a, a challenge it, as a deck builder. It is, but there's there's a lot of stuff that is... It kind of gives you, like, incidental insurance against them. Like, a Braid is a card that you can play, and it's like, it's fine. It kills Gearhulk and Heart of Kirin, which kind of insulates you from those cards to some degree. You still have to, you know, worry about them and be like, okay, what is my plan against Marty? Do I need an additional disenchant in my deck past these two or whatever? You know, you still have to think about it. It's not like, oh, I have two or Braid, so I'm good. You know, call it a day. Yeah, and I think that kind of is like, I think there's this new mode of deck building where we're relying a lot more on flexibility and it could be a side effect of the huge format. You know, along those lines, you see Supreme Will kind of just absolutely took off in the blue-red deck. It's It seems to be a default four of now. Everyone just plays four Supreme Will in, in the blue-red deck. I was um, pretty surprised by that. 
Yeah, but you can you can start to see why you just demand the flexibility and you need answers to all these different threats. And now you're able to filter a little bit more and you have counter magic when you need it. Um, it's kind of the same process when we first evaluated and I was low on it. And then I was just thinking more and more and I kept putting more and more Supreme Wills into my deck. And I understand why now there's there's just a demand for flexibility. So Interesting. Well, how does that change things from uh, the ramp perspective? Like you played in this PTQ, you are learning that you need to be a little bit more flexible but like ramp is just this highly inflexible deck right like you you have a plan a and that's about it so like are you still on that deck are you gonna change things are you gonna try other things like what's the deal so my win rate has been so high uh, honestly post ptq i've i've spent most of my time i'm going to gp toronto this weekend so i've just been playing a ton of limited okay. um so i was able to kind of pump the brakes on my standard prep a little bit a luxury that you know you don't have right now if I had a tournament tomorrow, I would honestly play the deck again. I was I was so close to just running the table. Um, and you talk about its inflexibility. Yes, its A plan is inflexible. You know, you're trying to ramp to Mardu. But in playing these games, you have so many different approaches you can take to every matchup. So many lines. Thought Not Seer adds so much versatility to your deck and allows you to kind of modify your game plans on the, on the fly. I didn't feel... It just doesn't feel like I'm a huge dog to anyone. And I've never lost to a Monument deck. In all the games I've played, and I'm like five leagues and a PTQ deep, probably seven matchups. You know, that's still small sample size. It's not like I've jammed 100 games and the matchup's 80%. But across that small sample size, the matchup has felt very favorable. And if that's the most played deck, I mean, like, that suggests that had I showed up at the SCG with my list, I would have done absolutely great. Where the only thing really preying on me to any extent was the mono red aggro deck. So the archetype is too good not to find success. And... Every iteration gets better. You on, I think it was Friday night, just mentioned Vessel of, of Nascency, which is a card, honestly, I, I just blanked on. It's n- it's not something I was ever like, oh, I wonder if Vessel's here. I, it just didn't cross my mind as an inclusion. And I ended up playing two copies in my list because it was immediately apparent how much better it was than playing without it. So there's still all these evolutions to make. And when you're dealing with a card that's as powerful as Hour of Promise, it, I still believe it's going to find a home. I'd be very surprised if someone doesn't get to just the perfect ramp list. Yeah, I, I would caution that, like, you say you've beaten all these monument decks. What do you think those monument decks are going to do after they lose to you? You think they're Go just going to Go add sideboard cards. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we talked about it being like a level one strategy or maybe even a level zero strategy. Uh, it's kind of like one of the most obvious things you could do. And that's why I, I wanted to strike while the iron was hot and get in on this first PTQ with it. So you're right. There are adaptations to be made. It's just now the format is kind of pulling in another direction and demanding some other adaptations. So are there space for both? And you're under the radar. Yeah, exactly. And, and now it's like, you know, we talked about how maybe this green blacklist was accounting for ramp by including dream stealer well maybe they can't afford to do that anymore because you have to worry about mono red and you have to worry about the pumbler decks that are all over the place and you're just like well i didn't play mono red or i didn't play ramp anyway i don't have these slots to give up anymore yeah okay and, well, and he lost a mardu in top eight and he's just like all right screw this like i need more mardu cards you know yeah i, th- I think that's going to be there, there's a lot of different directions that you're being pulled in right now and i think a lot of them don't have overlap with the ramp game plan it would totally shock me and I, I honestly don't believe this is biased just because I have a list I like. It would shock me if Ramp spent this entire format not being a player. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's just too powerful. At some point, someone's going to figure out the right list. Some contingent of players will show up at the Pro Tour with it. We'll have to see how it does at that point. Yeah. Now, Ramp, uh, there are two versions of Ramp 
on kind of like my bucket list before the PT. Like I went through the brewing phase and was like, okay, let's tighten it up. Let's like make some good decks. Did that. And now it's like, okay, now I've seen some other stuff. Now I'm back in the brewing phase. And I have, I have two ramp decks that I have to try. But yeah, I've also been drafting a little bit as of late. Just kind of getting that out of my system. Making sure that... Basically just trying to figure out where I'm at and how much help I need. You know, like where I need to focus. So I feel pretty good about like... If I had to play the PT tomorrow, like, would I draft okay? Yeah, I think I'd be okay. If the PT were tomorrow and I registered, like, Monument or whatever, would I do okay? I'd be like, yeah, I think I'm okay. So now I'm like, okay, I can brew. I can ignore draft for a little bit. That's good. It's always nice to have, like, your safety valve where you can just go totally off the rails. You know, I've, I've been on both sides where I've known well in advance what I was playing. Or at least I know, like my fallback option, which I'm very comfortable with. And I've been on the side where I'm just like, I have no idea what I'm doing two days before the event. Yeah. And uh, your life is so much better when you have that fail safe tucked in your back pocket and you can just kind of explore things. And I'm, I'm sure like your success rate correlates very much with how far in advance you're able to get to your safety valve. Cause it gives you so much freedom in the rest of your testing process. Maybe, I don't know. Like I always viewed pro tour testing as like, I just want to learn as many things as possible. And then uh, once I get to a point where I can just like actually step back, look at all the things I've learned and then try and figure out what people are going to do. And then, okay, if everyone's doing this, what makes sense for me to do, you know? And then like, what is the likelihood that I'm right? And that people are actually going to react this way. It's just like, I want to learn everything and then just be able to make a decision. It's not like, oh, I want to pick a deck and like tweak it a bunch because things are going to change, you know? Just like you and the PTQ and, and Mono Red and everything. It's like you slept for a day and everything changed, right? That's very true. Things move quickly now. I guess it's just more like a back pocket type thing. Like you don't have a disaster facing you. You know what I mean? If I can't figure it out, then sure, I can play Monument. But if I do figure it out, that's cool too. And in the situations where I've been like, I have no idea what's going on. I generally find that I've made like some of my best decisions in that time because it's not like, oh, you know, like what is the risk of me being wrong versus how bad is it going to be if I play white blue monument and it sucks? You know, I think that in those moments where like my back's against the wall and I have no other options except to like use my brain and use my logic and come up with a solution. Like I'm generally pretty good at that. Now that you say that, I think back to my own process and my best constructed performance at it. A PT was exactly that, where like two days before I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I just believe that this is where the format's headed. I'm going to bring Ad Nauseam. And it was like the best possible deck for the Pro Tour. So I get what you're saying, like where where you the chips are down and like you just have to trust yourself. That's a good that's a good lesson there. You know, you're, there's you're free. You're not constrained by anyone telling you that you should do a certain thing or you know, like, oh, I have this safe choice in my back pocket. It's like you have literally nothing except you have all the knowledge, right? You have all the knowledge and you hate everything. Like, every deck seems like it sucks yeah. or whatever. So then it's just like, okay, fine. You know, what What can I do to actually try and break it and spike the thing? Because that's the only way I'm going to enjoy myself. And it's like, you just go through and try and determine what that is and you do it. Boom. Yeah, I, I've, I've been through the process. I've seen it work. So I, I guess I shouldn't say that that approach. It definitely happens. Yeah, you actually have to, like, trust yourself that you're going to make the right decision in that regard, though, because I've definitely, like, gone two or three levels deeper than I should have, right? And now I'm trying to, like, rein it back in and, and keep it actually, like, within the spectrum of where everyone is now. 
Yeah, the psychology of magic is so interesting, right? Like you need to hit exactly the the perfect note of self-trust, right? <laughs> like you have to you have to believe in yourself exactly at the right level, otherwise you get to just these insane conclusions, but if you're like, you know, still de- still putting this little specter of doubt hanging over you that just pushes you before you step over to level 4, you know, where you right. just have no chance against any any of the decks anyone's bringing to the tournament. Um, yeah, and, and that's the point where you're like, oh, I should have played the backup deck. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting the the psychological struggle you have in your pro tour prep. I would I would love to do like case studies on how everyone approaches it and kind of the psychological wear and tear we put ourselves through in the weeks preceding. But God, it would be fascinating. Yeah. Well, so what's good? What decks do you like? Uh, ramp aside. I think if I had to play a tournament tomorrow, ramp aside, I'd probably play Marty Vehicles. Which is a weird thing to say because God, I, you you and your biases. I know. I, I don't I don't even have a reason to do that. I just feel like it's safe. It has good game against the field. If you were asking me to make a little bit riskier choice where like I wasn't trying to leverage my play skill quite as much and I was just like, uh, I, I think this deck is an inherently good. Pummeler is interesting. Like the Pummeler decks I played against really impressed me in the tournament. Um, there's some rug shells out there which are kind of adding a, a little wrinkle. I'm not sure if they can modify their plan such that they're able to compete with Mono Red. Maybe. I, I would explore Pummeler right now because there's there's some innovation going on with those lists that I think definitely uh, the deck is kind of moving up a little bit in the tier list. Yeah, I, I am terrified of the Pummeler deck. I don't know. I think I think the list is there. Like I, I like the the two flings. I like the invigorated rampages. I like the fact that they have like hydras and glory bringers in the in the sideboards. So they can just like go big and side out their crappy combo stuff. You know, like I think the deck is pretty well built actually. It, it's definitely evolved from where it was. You know, just a month ago. It's starting to broach into that tier one territory. It, it's get. I wouldn't say it's there yet, but it's getting close. Yep. Uh, other than that, I would play monument. Uh, not just completely biased, but it's also just like, it's it's kind of killing it. Jonathan Rossum absolutely annihilated the Open outside of one match loss against a control deck. And his list wasn't anything spectacular. It was basically just like, eh, basically our invitational list. He cut two of the ETB tap lands, which is a great change. He had two nimble obstructionists in the sideboard, which are a nice hedge against ramp. But yeah, nothing, nothing too fancy, man. And he just crushed everyone, so... That's always great. Uh, that was the only deck to double up in the top eight of the Open. It's been doing well on Magic Online. I think it's good. It's just like what list you play is very difficult because like is Dust Dawn good? Uh, I like Sheffit Dunes a lot. I think that card is excellent. You have to rework the mana base a little bit, but whatever. Jadine and Emma Handy both played Angel of Sanctions, which I think is pretty interesting, especially with Sheffit Dunes. And obviously if you play that, you can't really play Dust Dawn, so... They had those relegated to the sideboard, so that's like another interesting take. I don't know. Yeah, you pointed out the uh, the excellent anti-mono-red sideboard options, which is, is certainly like a, a big piece of the puzzle right now. Yeah. I, I like your tech there, and I, I see that with the proper preparation, it would be pretty easy to get an edge up on the mono-red deck. So Some of the bigger monument decks, too, the ones that have like Lancers and stuff, just have Glory Bound Initiate made deck, which I think is perfectly reasonable, too. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that. I know uh, it's a little bit further down the PTQ list, but Tommy Ashton played mono-white monument with basically that package, and but he doesn't have, I don't think, any blue cards. I want to look again. No, he's sure just mono-white. Uh, what do you think about that? 
it's it's a list that some of the Japanese players have been doing well with yeah, on Magic Online. I don't floating around. Yeah, I don't know where it came from originally. It's I'm not really into casting Thalia's Lancers or Gisela or any of that nonsense, so it's not for me, you know? Yeah, I I beat this list in the PTQ and it was just like I I struggled to think about who the I don't even know what the card is called, the meld card, the combination angel. Who that was like, Yeah, who that was really killing. No one. Uh, it's just it's really big. It probably kills everyone, but it's like the Lancer stuff is probably good against mid range and control. So I don't know, maybe teamer energy. Yeah, maybe that's where the edge is. I don't I don't know. I, I can't see taking a deck like this without access to blue right now. That seems crazy to me, but uh it is it is garnering some popularity. So. I think Rebuke is awesome, and I think if you peg the metagame right, either Essence Scatter Negate, Invasive Surgery, like one of those is gonna be great. Yeah, they all have and, their place. I, I'm not super high on Spell Queller right now, so I don't know if that's going to be... Like, that That card is uh, not a Sacred Cow. I would definitely be fine with getting rid of that. But. I really have to get in my Blue-White Monument games. I, I've just been playing against it all this time, and for whatever reason, I, I haven't picked it up yet. So uh, maybe that's on my to-do list for this week. By next week, I'll have some, some Blue-White games under my belt. Well, now the price of the deck has tripled, so have fun with that. Oh, I own it all already. I, I still oh, okay. own everything in Standard on my desk. So. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, what what would I not play? I would not play, like, any of the energy decks. I feel like they're basically outclassed now. Interesting. Does that, in- does that extend to Pummeler? Uh, no. Pummeler, Pummeler is doing, like, a very specific thing. It's a glass cannon, for the yep. most part. Uh, so you're talking black-green rug or, energy. Yeah, or Teamer. Okay, I could get on board with that. I don't, I don't see Teamer having really any positive matchups around. You know what, though? I, I hate to bring it back to this. Our worst matchup as the ramp deck was certainly like Rug Emerge and just regular Teamer Energy. It was by far our hardest matchup. So those start falling away. Okay, ramp okay. One of these away. days, man, the stars are actually going to align for you. You better I play in some so. tournaments. It'll be the one where I'm playing Marty Vehicles, I'm sure. Yeah, so. naturally, naturally. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the the last note on Emerge, like, I was pretty high on it. I do, I still think that, like, the deck itself is probably very good, but it's, like, is is Champion of Wits grinding actually relevant in a lot of these matchups? Are, like, people are able to kill Elder Deep Fiend now. I think they, like, figured that out. There are, like, more Stasis Snares and Harness Lightnings instead of, like, a Braids and whatnot. Like, you were even playing Struggle to Survive. Mm-hmm. And how good is Kozilek's return right now? Because it seems really bad to me. It isn't. It doesn't seem very good against anyone. Yeah, I struggled to find the the right spot for it. Um, I, like I, I never felt like I could play it in ramp because it didn't kill what I needed to kill. I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's like the card I want to shape my perception of the metagame around. Like I, I'm not relying on it to bail me out. And honestly, that's one of the power points of the Elder Deep Fiend decks. So maybe that's why I, they did very little this weekend. They had a minimal showing across both top 32. So. Yep. So kind of off team emerge for the most part. I am sort of interested in an Hour of Promise Elder Deep Fiend deck, but we'll save that for later. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> All right. That's game! Good luck.